So I want to carry on talking a bit more about uh, creating a supernatural culture. That's where we were last time. And this is trailing a bigger series that's probably coming in the autumn uh, about the kingdom of God. Uh, So today I want to talk about why I think we must build a supernatural culture in building the church. And there's no conflict actually with something else that we've talked a lot about, which is the culture of honour. You know, we think that's a really important part of church, that we honour people, we honour one another, we honour the gifts that are amongst us, we honour God. And there's no conflict, actually, because out of that conflict, that culture of honour comes the possibility of a culture of the supernatural. Because it's as we honour one another and honour the gifts and honour God that God is able to move amongst us in the most amazing ways. That honour is very important, an important foundation for that. So what I want to do is just pray, and then I'm going to share some things I've been feeling prophetically uh, for this, and then I'm going to get into some passages in Acts, possibly. Okay, so Lord Jesus, I just want to thank you for your beautiful presence. Lord, we just love your presence. We love the smell, the feel, the touch, the taste. We love everything about you. We love everything about your presence. We love the way that you talk to us. We love the way you encourage us. Just singing over us like that, how beautiful we are, that's just amazing to us that you would ever think such a thing. But we thank you for our wonderful Saviour who's made that possible. Jesus, we honour you and we worship you. Amen. Okay, so one of the things I noticed about being in a more spirit... If you didn't catch the last talk, you're going to need to, because I'm not going to go over it again, because it's on the website. I'm going to refer back to a few things. But if one of the things I noticed about being in a more spiritual culture, so the African culture is much more spiritually aware, was that it was easier to talk about spiritual things. It's funny that, isn't it? It's just I didn't have to think about the language so much. I didn't have to think about the concepts. It seems like people were already there. They already got it. So I spent the afternoon uh, with a couple of leaders who were struggling with some issues in the church, uh, their church at that time. And I was able to go straight in on what it means to encounter spiritual opposition without having to do the whole explanation from the Bible, starting right back from Genesis and working through. And it was just easy to talk about it. We were easy to pray about it. It was easy to deal with the situation. There's just a language, there's an understanding there, there's an awareness there, which is easier. And it's not always so easy for us here in the UK because of our more physical worldview, the way that we look at things, the way that we approach things. We tend to be much more touchy. You know, we need to be able to touch it and feel it and experience it to get it. We're not so good at living with things that we don't understand. So it's not so easy, even with other leaders. I find that I sometimes need to moderate what I say or have to find a way of explaining things that's slightly different, and maybe you feel the same thing, because you don't want to freak people out, uh, and you don't want to lose them, and you don't want them to think that you're crazy. I mean, if you came to the Life Troops Together meeting on Thursday night, you might have wondered if there were some crazy people in that room. Because actually what happened that evening was the Holy Spirit came amongst us, and one after the other, after there's about 20 of us in the room, we all saw exactly the same picture. 
God was speaking to us about exactly the same thing. And it, it was kind of a fountains of vortexes, of moves of the Spirit. And then somebody gets something about a rainbow. If you were an outside external observer, you'd wonder what on earth we were talking about. But there's a spiritual understanding that's important. And if we're going to build a supernatural culture, then it needs to be easier for us to talk about spiritual things. We need to be acclimatized as a church to the culture of heaven and heavenly things. It should be okay to talk about the move of the Spirit and know what we're talking about. It should be okay to talk about angels coming and being amongst us. It should be okay to talk about some of these things. And I say this at a time when many churches, even from our own movement, are dialing down on the gifts of the Spirit. They're putting back more structure into worship, moving away from preaching to a kind of lecturing style accompanied by video presentations. I'm going to show you a video a bit later, but anyway. But all of this is in an apparent effort to fit in more with our own culture. We need to dial it down a bit. Let's not be so supernatural. We might frighten people away. But is this what we really need? I mean, is this what is really going on in our culture? And I can't help but thinking that this may be more of a problem for the churched than the unchurched. Because in the last 20 or 30 years, there's been a dramatic cultural shift towards the experience of spiritual things. So last week, for example, a a national newspaper reported on a survey that showed more than half of those surveyed believed in and had experienced some kind of supernatural phenomena. More than half. And it's a national survey. Less than half, though, believed in God. But they believed in some kind of supernatural or spiritual experience. 10% of these people claimed to have some kind of supernatural power. You know, some of them talked about the ability to predict the future. Some people talked about ESP or healing powers. And the survey also showed that people are more likely to go to a tarot card reader or a fortune teller for direction or help than the church. Something's changed, hasn't it? Have we kept up with that change? Do we, have we kept up with it as churches? Do we understand what's been happening in our culture? Chris Kilby was saying, who was with us this week, he, an evangelist working down in Southampton, that he's found that there's just an incredible openness, especially with younger people from ages 18 up to about 30, 30, 30 still quite young apparently, that there is an incredible openness to talk about spiritual things. And it seems that the unchurched culture in our country is growing more spiritual than some of the churched. There was a Church of England canon who was interviewed about this survey, and his attitude was that it was all hocus-pocus, and he thought it was funny that people would find these things interesting, rather than the opportunity that there is to engage with people. 
Um, last week, I think it was, we were in a regional leaders meeting in Birmingham, and there's a couple there called John and Hannah Fielding who lead a church plant in Northfield. And they were talking about how they'd uh, got in with the uh, pub in the area and were using that upper room for all sorts of meetings and uh, they've run a toddler group there in a pub, crumbs, you know, and there's all sorts of stuff going on there. But the, the pub people have got really impressed with these Christians who've got this amazing ability to organise events and get people in and see all these people going through their doors... And so they said to them, look, we're hoping to have a clairvoyant evening. And uh, we just wondered if you might like to organise that for us. (laughs) And so John says, well, uh, I don't know about clairvoyant evening, but we could do a prophetic evening if you like. You can have people come in and we'll prophesy of them things that we think God wants them to, to hear. The feedback at the end is that is the most accurate clairvoyant evening that we have ever experienced. (laughs) A couple of years ago, a bishop from Kenya came to see me, and I've known this man for many years, and he said that in the last ten years of coming over to England, he's seen an incredible change in the spirituality of our nation. He said, Africa has come to England... And he said that what troubles him is that he doesn't think that the church or its leaders are equipped to deal with the change in our spiritual atmosphere. And he says a new kind of church is needed. And he, he appeared on my doorstep and he says, I've come to commission you. I've come to commission your church because I believe that God has great things for you. A new kind of church And you know, we need to see the signs of our times. God is on the move, but in a very different way from what we've seen before. It seems like he's unlocking something in our culture, a kind of spiritual hunger that we need to be able to answer. And this is why I'm saying we need to build a supernatural culture. And you know, prophetically, I believe that we're living in the days of Cornelius-type conversions, the kind of supernatural or encounter type of conversion like we see in the book of Acts, chapter 10. And I think it's going to be bigger than anything we've ever seen before. And I don't mean that those are the only kind of conversions that we're going to see, but I feel that I need to emphasize this, that this is something that God is doing in our nation at the moment and we need to be aware of it. And so for the rest of our time, I just want to take you through Acts, chapter 10, Uh, and 11, and I want to pick out some different bits of the story. And I'm not going to go into all the details. You can read the stories yourself a bit later on. I'm just going to pick some things out as we go through. And I'm going to look at three things. Number one, I want to look at Cornelius-type conversions. What are they? Number two, I want to look at Peter-type preparations. How does God prepare us for this? And thirdly, I want to look at church conversations. How on earth are we going to prepare ourselves for this? How are we going to respond to these things? So firstly, Cornelius-type conversions, what are they? So if you turn to Acts chapter 10, we're going to look from verses 1 to 8. Are you, up, are you keeping up with me? Is this all right? 
So verse 1 is this, it says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius who was a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. That's Cornelius. Cornelius, he's a kind of ordinary working kind of man. He's a kind of ordinary guy. He's going about his daily life. And he, he is a devout and God-fearing man. And he could have been any one of a number of people in our own community, couldn't he? I mean, it says that he was God-fearing. It says that the Jews respected him. He was respected by the Jews. It says that a bit later on. But he wasn't a Jew. He wasn't a Christian. We don't know what he was. We just know that he was God-fearing. But he could have been a Muslim. He could have been a Sikh. He could have been a Hindu. He could have been some other kind of spiritually open person in our community. And it says in verse 3 that one day at about 3 in the afternoon, he had a vision. And this was the vision that he saw. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. We don't know why it was 3 o'clock, but that is quite often the time of prayer. Maybe he was at prayer. But he had this supernatural experience, an intervention from heaven. This vision that appeared and a distinct form of an angel. It was so clear for him to see. It wasn't just one of those dreamy apparitions. He could actually see the angel and what it looked like. And not only could he see the angel, he could also hear what the angel was saying. And the the angel knew who he was and used his name, Cornelius. I mean, what must that have been like? He's just sitting around, three o'clock in the afternoon, and suddenly this vision breaks out. And these are the kind of things that happen in a community that is more open to spiritual things. And it can happen in other ways. It doesn't necessarily need to be a vision like this. It could be an encounter with God on the streets with one of you. It could be that God uses you to bring a word of knowledge to somebody. Or it could be that you are used with a work colleague and bring a prophetic word. Or it could be that you feel, I want to go and pray for that person and see them healed. And they get healed right in front of you. But there's an encounter that occurs, a supernatural encounter where heaven breaks in and they've got to do something about it. That's what a Cornelius type of conversion involves. And then it says in verse 4 that Cornelius stared at the angel in fear. Well, you would, wouldn't you? He said, what is it, Lord, he said. And the angel answered, he said, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. And he's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. I mean, can you just look at the amount of detail there that this angel reports to Cornelius? He knows all about his prayers. He knows about his gifts to the poor. He knows about Joppa, and that that's where Simon, who's also called Peter... And he's staying with Simon, who's a tanner, and his house is by the sea. I mean, there's an incredible amount of detail there, isn't there? I mean, shouldn't we be using angel communication more often? It just seems to be so accurate. And it directed him right to where he needed to go. And the thing about this specific detail is that it was unmistakable and it was provable. Isn't that amazing? That encounter with God led him very specifically 
to a particular person. And then verse 7 says that when the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier, who was one of his his attendants, and he told them everything that had happened. And I just think, wow. I mean, how would you feel if your boss came to you one day and said, right, I've just had this. This angel appeared. He's told me I've got to go here and I've got to meet this guy and I've got to go that time because that's where he is. And he's got a lovely house just by the sea. And you just think, well, you know, what is the soldier thinking right now? You know, the soldier is a man who's used to the battle. He's used to serving his master. He's saying, what on earth has been going on here? And they might think he was completely out of his mind. But I don't know, because somehow or other, they were, he was easily able to talk to these guys around him about these spiritual experiences. They didn't laugh him out of town. They didn't mock him, as far as we know. He didn't hesitate to talk, and they also acted upon the information that had been given. And I wonder, what would your reaction be? It may be that somebody, a work colleague of yours or a neighbour, has a dream. It may not be a vision, or it may be just an encounter with something. And they need to know what to do about it. This, these sorts of things are becoming increasingly common. There's just an increasing number of reported encounters with Jesus across the Muslim world in particular people meeting Jesus and they say on the video that it's not just the encounter that that matters, it's actually what they do with the encounter. They go and find out about Jesus. Conversion follows later but how often that encounter is the sign that leads them to Christ. And this is a growing phenomenon. So when you hear of this kind of thing, do you see how important our own reactions to spiritual experiences are? So if you don't believe that God speaks in dreams and there aren't visions and all that kind of thing, you're going to get into a bit of trouble when you have these kind of conversations with people. I mean, I don't know if you've had any of your own. Maybe you should ask God for some. So, Lord, I would like, would you give me a vision one day or would you speak to me in a dream? Because he will. Or if you haven't, then just use some of the other stories that you hear around the church of other people encountering Jesus in that way or God speaking to them. But what about us as a church? Can we handle such language or can our faith cope with such vivid experience? I think it would be great. I, I would love to meet somebody like that who has that kind of experience. And I think there is an openness Uh, amongst us. And I really believe that this is something that God is doing today and we need to prepare ourselves for it. Something supernatural is happening in our nation that the church needs to respond to. And you know, as if to confirm this, as I was preparing to share this with you, I had a phone call out of the blue from Simon, Simon Bradford, who's at work today, otherwise he would have shared the story himself. But he's been talking to a Sikh man at work about Jesus. And, uh, <clears throat> and through some of the stories that Simon told him and through some of the experiences that this man had as a result and prayers that were prayed, 
the Sikh man decided that he would deal with a problem that's been occurring in his sister's house now for some time because they believed that there had been a curse put on the house and all sorts of weird stuff had been happening. So they'd heard about how powerful Jesus was, so they took a bottle of oil, they went into the house, they anointed the house with oil and prayed in the name of Jesus and commanded whatever it was to leave. His sister and he apparently stood there as this dark shape ran out of the house and they celebrated in the power and the name of Jesus. These guys aren't even Christians. And then as they were driving away, as they were driving away, a, a, a weird kind of accident occurred because the car somehow, and they can't explain how, and I'm not sure of all the details, but it ended up with the windscreen, uh, with the door mirror suddenly shattered as they were driving away. And the Sikh community there said, well, that's, that's what happens when a, a, a demon runs for its life and is terrified, and you got in its way. What do you think about that? And Simon says, what, what should I say to him? <laughs> Have I got anything to, sh- to, to give him to read? Or quick, give me a prayer. <laughs> wow. God's on the move. And the thing is about Cornelius, and the thing is about what happened to this guy, is they're coming to us. We're not even having to go to them. Because people are searching out answers to these questions. And the wonderful thing is that the angel directed Cornelius to Peter, a man who God has already prepared. So let's just look at Peter-type preparations and how God prepares us for these things. So Acts chapter 10, verses 9 to 23, we're going to go through that quite quickly. Verse 9 says this, About noon the following day, as they were on the journey, and approaching the city, Peter went up onto the roof to pray. It's even while they were travelling, while they were on the way, that God was preparing Peter. He was drawing, drawing Peter in to pray. And verse 10, it says he became hungry, and wanted something to eat. How often does that happen to you when you start to pray? (laughs) Even to Peter, he he became hungry, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He was hungry, but he was distracted to pray. And I love this. I love the everyday mundaneness of this sentence, that Peter was trying to pray, he was distracted because he was hungry, And while the meal was being prepared, then he fell into a trance. And yet the rest of it's all so mundane and normal and everyday, and then he fell into a trance. And you know, a trance is actually more common than you might think. Um, How many men especially don't hear their wife calling them for dinner? (laughs) Because I'm reading a book or I'm doing something on the computer, that's a form of a trance. Um, That's my excuse anyway. And or, or how about driving and not noticing the journey? That's a kind of a trance that we all fall into regularly. But this is a trance that is a, an altered or a distracted state inspired by the Holy Spirit. So I just want to ask you the question, are, are you open to that, for God to distract you in the middle of your day? 
and just take you away and start to speak to you, start to take you into this other realm of the Spirit. And then your wife might come to you, as Alison says, where have you gone? She said, what are you doing? And I said, just praying, you know, God's just distracted by the Holy Spirit. This is part of his preparation Verse 11 says that he saw the heavens open, something like a large sheet. We heard about the sheet today, didn't we? A large sheet being led in down to earth by its four corners and it, all these animals in it. And then the voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. So God is, this is a bit special, but God is preparing Peter for ministry amongst the Gentiles and to Cornelius, the Gentiles, uh, sorry, the Cornelius was a Gentile and to the Jewish people, he was unclean. And eating, so kill and eat, is a picture of fellowship. So he wouldn't even, Peter wouldn't have even eaten with a Gentile because of the uncleanness and the the risk of being contaminated. But God says, uh, kill and eat. There's something coming. Surely not, verse 14, Peter says, I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. And then the voice spoke to him a second time, don't call anything impure that God has made clean, and this happens three times. And three is important. It's often indicative of completeness or of something that will happen that God has already decided. So God has already decided that it's time for Peter to start going out and ministering to the Gentiles. It's already been decided. It's going to happen. I'll come back to that shortly. But Peter doesn't know what this is all about. He doesn't understand the vision. In verse 17, while Peter was wondering about the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. And I like this because we shouldn't be in too much of a rush to try and interpret spiritual experiences. Peter was still wondering about the meaning of the vision And, you know, sometimes we just need to sit on things for a bit or park them somewhere. And living with a supernatural culture requires us to be able to handle some things that we don't understand or we can't explain. And there needs to be within this a kind of acclimatization to waiting or just holding back a bit. So, well, that was amazing, but what does it mean? Mary modelled this well for us. You know, when the angel came and spoke to her about Jesus, it says in the passage that she pondered these things in her heart. She just kept them there. And waiting enables also the Holy Spirit to speak. And I just want to encourage you, you know, if, if God gives you a vision, it's okay to ask God or some other kind of supernatural experience. It's okay to say, God, I need you to confirm that. I need you to show me again. I need you to just be clear with me, because I might have got it wrong. I might not have understood it fully. So waiting enables the Spirit to speak to us further and confirm the meaning or direction that he wants us to take. So in verse 19, it says that while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit says to him, the inward witness of the Holy Spirit says, Simon, three men are looking for you. Get up and go downstairs. Don't hesitate to go with them for I have sent them. So Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Isn't that cool? Why have you come? 
And the men replied, well, we've come from Cornelius, and he's a God-fearing man, he's respected by the Jewish people, holy angel, etc. And then, verse 23, Peter invites the men into his house. So there's been a whole lot of supernatural encounters and directions given to Peter, which have some pretty big implications for the future direction of the church. And this is more than we need, if you like, because this was pretty sort of significant redirection setting. It's about the Gentiles. But it's a very good passage to show us how to evaluate spiritual experiences. Because it says in 1 John 4.1, test the spirits and see whether they are of God. We don't just take everything that comes out of the spiritual atmosphere. We need to weigh things, we need to test things. And all of these are in threes. There's all these threes. So there's three steps here. Firstly, there's a vision that was given to Peter in a trance. Secondly, there was the voice of the Spirit speaking to him. And then thirdly, the three men appearing downstairs just as the Holy Spirit had told him. But you know, for some of us, in a hurry in spiritual experiences, the trance and then the vivid vision would have been enough. We'd have just gone out on that. We would have acted on that. We might not have understood what it was, but it would have gone out anyway. But Peter doesn't rush, and he's not afraid to live with the fact that he doesn't understand. He's very honest about that. The passage says that. He waits. And so not all visions or spiritual experiences are from God. We need to wait for that inner witness of the Holy Spirit. But then, not only does Peter get that, he questions the men to confirm the impression that the Holy Spirit's given him. And then he acts. So there's a whole load of stuff there. But when we talk about a supernatural culture or we're encouraging spiritual experience, it's not a license for everything to suddenly get weird. God never tells us to leave our brains outside because they get in the way of the Spirit. That's just rubbish. Peter wonders, it says, he thinks, and then he questions. There's the three steps again. And for us, we can also look at the Bible and see what that says. And although, although these things take place in a very short period of time, it's whilst the men are waiting downstairs for him, but still Peter works through these three steps and he evaluated and validated supernatural guidance. And so he was well prepared by God for Cornelius, the vision, the spirit, and the three men. And I believe God's doing that for us today. I believe that that's something of what God is doing amongst us. He's teaching us about supernatural experiences and how to understand them. And so the rest of the chapter, uh, of chapter 10, Peter then takes a group of people with him from the church. Again, that's interesting. It wasn't just a one-man ministry. It was perhaps come and see or come and train. But a whole bunch of people go with Peter to lead Cornelius and his whole household to Jesus. But it doesn't end there. Let's just have a quick look at chapter 11 now, where Peter returns to the church and involves them in this series of spiritual conversations and experiences that he's been having. Because as we'll see, this is clearly a church that's able to handle supernatural interventions and spiritual conversations, but it's also clear that Peter involved the church in evaluating his experiences. And God gives the church, their own three steps. So here we go. Church conversations, how should we respond to these things? Chapter 11, verse 1 to 18. 
The first thing we notice in verse 2 is that when Peter returned to Jerusalem, the believers criticized him. He told them about these spiritual experiences and the fact that these Gentiles had become Christians, but the believers criticized them. Now that word criticize is to contend. They gave judgment to, they they discerned, they asked pertinent questions. And this is an important context for the story because bear in mind this was a significant change of direction for the church. So they weren't about to have some kind of spiritual experience detract them from what they already knew. They needed to test it. But the fact that the Peter is the founding apostle who'd been trained by Jesus himself didn't stop the believers from feeling they were able to challenge him or call him to account. And you know, all leaders must be accountable to their churches, whatever wide and exciting ministry they have, whatever amazing experiences or supernatural powers they appear to have. And this is where it's gone wrong over the years and brought the ministry into disrepute. But there's a safety in this as well as an incredible opportunity to partner in the wider ministry I believe God is giving to us as churches at the moment. And then in verse 4, it says that starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. He rehearsed it with them. He leaves nothing out. He opens up the whole encounter for scrutiny. He says, I, I saw a stra-, he said, I, I saw, I was in a trance and I saw this vision. He, t- he talks about the vision. And then he says in verse 12, the spirit told me to go with these men, but I took these six brothers with me too from the church. And then verse 13, it says that how they got to Cornelius' house and Cornelius told them all for themselves the story of how he'd received this angelic visitation. And then ultimately, there was a confirmation of three given to the church, the Holy Spirit, Jesus himself, and God the Father. Because in verse 15, it says that as, Peter says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them, as he had on us at the beginning. Secondly, I remembered what the Lord had said, Jesus, John baptized with water, but will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, he says, God gave them the same gift as he gave to us, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 18, when I heard, they heard this, they raised no further objections and praised God. And all this had started with an angelic intervention and then these experiences that were validated and tested by Peter and then by God himself and finally by the church. Now admittedly, we've we've rushed through that, but we're talking about the salvation of the Gentiles, which is a pretty huge change of direction for the early church. And we don't need that kind of substantial confirmation, but I think it's a good example of how God protects us from deception in spiritual experiences. You know, we don't need to be afraid of the supernatural because the supernatural is where God is, and so we must build a supernatural culture. So let me conclude then, because as I said at the beginning, I believe that God has been working in our country in a very significant way in changing the spiritual climate and culture of our nation. And I'm not sure that the church universal has kept pace with what's going on. But we must build a supernatural culture because we're called to as Jubilee, but in particular, I think, to meet the needs that are in our own communities, our mission. 
And I believe that God is taking us through a time of preparation and training in these things. I mean, just look at the pattern of what's happening at the moment. If you're, member, if you're part of the church here, you'll know. I've, I've just come back from South Africa, which has been great. And then Chris Kilby came and what he brought. If you've missed out on that, it was amazing. And then we've got Julian coming, a prophet from South Africa, who I believe is really going to equip us in this. And then we've got a whole weekend with Angela Kem. And you kind of stand back and say, well, God, what are you up to? He seems to be equipping us for the supernatural and training us in these things. I was so encouraged, you know, by um, our time with Chris this week because what encouraged me most was his openness and his willingness to be led by the Spirit in leading others to Christ. He's prepared to just take that risk of going and praying for somebody randomly on the street, introducing them to a supernatural encounter, and then from that, leading them to Christ. I think he's got it right. I think that's what God's doing. God's on the move.